All right, welcome back to another week from the bench. Uh, we are excited about today's uh, guest, this week's guest. Um, but before we bring her on, uh, why don't we just kick it around? Tony, what do you have for us this week? Well, some things that have uh, been coming up more and more recently is talking about players, uh, especially college athletes, that are deciding whether or not they want to play this season. Um, I know, obviously, the NFL is coming up. And uh, Major League Baseball has uh, had some issues with just players opting out and not playing. And um, so now you're starting to see some college football players talking about opting out and not playing the season. And, and uh, so I think some of the things you have to think about are, you know, as you move into other sports, you know, not just football in the fall, but any other fall sport and how that may or may not impact uh, their clocks for their, their five-year clocks to, to finish four years of eligibility. And, um, if that uh, and then incoming kids that have uh, not even started yet, how their clocks may be affected um, as far as when they start, if they choose to opt out or even if that's an option based on where they're at. Uh, so I don't know if we have a definitive answer because it sounds and looks like it's going to be pretty specific to schools. Uh, the only thing I know we've heard in the past is that at Wisconsin um, in the spring, those student athletes that were uh, didn't get to finish maybe their last year um, were not going to have the opportunity to come back. So um, just just some things that are out there. And uh, Jesse, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring it up. We've talked off air, um, you know, and, and, and NCAA has been pretty firm on the whole clock format. And, 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 you know, as you brought up in the past, you know, would they make an exception for such a unique circumstance? Um, and then the Wisconsin thing and how they handled spring sports, it seemed like everybody uh, sort of handled that phase of it in, in every university sort of did their own thing, you know. And so I think that's the, you know, I think Rachel talked about it last year, last week of everybody sort of doing their own thing and, um, you know, and, and, and how that goes moving forward. How does each division handle it? Those of us in Division Two might, might we handle a little bit in, in Division One schools. Um, so I it's certainly the great unknown, which is incredibly frustrating for those of us that trying to plan and recruiting, um, you know, and, and 21, 22, when does 22 start? Uh, you know, Brian and I in California, you know, our state not going to finish basketball, I think, until June. Is that right, Brian? Something like that. So, um, you know, it's it just an interesting paradigm and, and how that's going to change the landscape. So, um, you know, I mean, and, I know in our case, you know, if, if for something happened and we're not going to play for a championship, I mean, you know, selfishly, we'd love to redshirt our whole entire team. You know, we love the group we have come back. So, you know, I mean, I, that's sort of been our conversations. Of, you know, we want to make sure that however this moves forward, that there's some sort of something to play for on the back end. And I think that's maybe going to be somewhat of a deciding factor for, say, the average, you know, college kid. Um, you know, those ones that are going to play at the next level, um, you know, maybe, maybe opting out and making sure they're, they're taking care of their bodies and, and stuff that that may be a different conversation and different decision. And, you know, and I don't know where, you know, where this all will, will end up, but, you know, it's fascinating. And, and I know Gavin, you're kind of in, in that a little bit, but, you know, you know, we're still talking about people having fall sports and, and people moving forward with football, moving forward with their fall sports season you know, albeit delayed, maybe start in some respects, but yet still starting. Um, those of us say in non-football schools, you know, they've pretty much sort of said, hey, this is probably pushing to, uh, you know, maybe late 2020 before you can even start training. 
Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't know how that's shaping up and, and sort of that ramification of, of when fall sports fall and how would that affect people opting out for, for, from your guys' perspective. Yeah, just a lot of unknown, a lot of uncertainty, um, a lot of uncontrollables. The, the one thing that, you know, if it's not on people's minds, uh, we're going to have to start thinking about it. And these are the realities of a possibility of a condensed season. Uh, maybe an elimination of a season. Uh, if an elimination of a season happens, you know, does the administration uh, allow those kids to redshirt and get that year of eligibility back? Uh, like Tony uh, referenced Wisconsin and their decision to do so. What if it's a, a condensed version of a, for basketball, 29 to 31 games, if you consider the conference tournaments, and now we're only going to play conference games. Okay. It's a shortened season. What if a player and her family, thinks it's in their best interest to redshirt. I mean, as coaches, you kind of got to listen to them and, you know, and come to an agreement of some sort. What if a kid is close to graduating? What if a kid, I want to redshirt this year, graduates. And over the last three years, the transfer portal has changed the dynamic of recruiting. So there are a lot of what ifs that I would suggest and recommend that if you're a head coach at any level, you should be thinking of these things. You should be getting those calculations of what are the chances of this happening. Um, that way you're not blindsided or surprised by anything. Um, it's just, it is what it is. You know, just think back a few years ago when as coaches, we wanted our kids to stay in the summer when we had summer access. Well, what that's doing is that's speeding up their graduation. Now, instead of four to five years, some of them are graduating in three. Well, guess what? You're also giving them the option to go play their final year elsewhere. And if you're not thinking about that, then you're just kind of being naive because it's right there in front of you. So these are the type of things, you know, you're, it's changing the way we look at things. It's changing the way we recruit. Um, and these are the discussions that I think coaching staffs should be having, should be having uh, just to kind of prepare themselves and not be blindsided. Well, and, and so I think, Tony's point, bringing it up, there's always a ripple effect to, to every decision that's out there. And, and I love what you brought up, Gavin, in the sense of just, you know, summer access, there had to be some component of school. And so just that one decision of saying, you know what, yeah, you can practice in the summers and have your classes or kids go to classes, totally speeding things up. I mean, because I mean, back in the day, we were having our kids take five classes a semester. And then if you add the, 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 one or two classes in the summer, I mean, what will they do the final season? Now, granted, we always push the, the master's program, but what if it's a program that, you know, they weren't, they weren't interested in or, or whatnot, right? And, and I think what we're also seeing from the ripple of COVID is how certain policies, whether it's federally, um, but, but policies that are out there that are affecting teams, you know, and I mean, we, we all take an eye out towards the international athlete and player. And so even if we have one or two or, or multiple, and that's our way of, of building a team, I mean, there's policies in place during this COVID and, and the decisions that these schools are making, which is going online, that are preventing athletes from coming, coming and being part of their team, you know, and, and just what a few months ago, it was, it was uh, mental health awareness month. And, and, what about that psyche of not being able to be with your team because of a policy that's out there? So I think it's just, 
it's all interesting in, in the sense of just the ripple and how it, it, it affects our current team, but then also the, the future teams as it relates to recruiting. So um, definitely things that we'll, we'll dive into more throughout, throughout this uh, pandemic. And, and obviously we'll be watching how conferences make these decisions and, and how I think the NCAA and along with all the other associations will be making their decisions for their members. So uh, excited for this week's uh, guest. We will be right back. All right, welcome back. Uh, we have our guest, Kira Carter, one of the newest members of the head coaching, exclusive head coaching fraternity and uh, sorority, however we want it. That's probably a slash, right? Those of us that are in a fraternity, we'd be fraternity, sorority. Uh, so welcome to From the Bench. Appreciate you being here. And uh, we're looking forward to our conversation with you. Um, I'd love to just uh, start right away with uh, maybe talking about uh, your basketball journey uh, and you can go where you want to go when, when you were eight years old and you picked up a ball or four or if you want to go when you were in eighth grade or whenever whenever the bug bit you and and has been the, the foundation really for uh, you know the opportunity that you are now about to embark on so talk to us about where that bug uh, started for you all right well first off thank you guys for having me on today um it's fun to kind of share stories and things like that so thank you for giving me this platform um i'm a little bit unique because like you talk to so many coaches and even just basketball players in general and a lot of them have like some type of athletic history in their family um maybe a parent played or a sibling played or something like that but i'm like the only athlete in my family so that's a little bit different um I don't know how I picked up a ball, but it was very, very early, like the age of two or three years old and uh, grew up watching the Indiana Pacers, grew up watching Purdue University. My parents went to Purdue, so um, was a Boilermaker fan, uh, grew up on Reggie Miller, Rick Smiths, all those guys. So um, that's kind of the era I grew up in and, and the culture I grew up in as far as being in Indiana, which a lot of you guys know is a basketball state. Um, they say that basketball was raised here. You know, it might not have been born here, but it was raised here. <laughs> so I got into it pretty early. Um, and I think, you know, in third grade, I was invited to play on like a fourth grade rec team. So it kind of started there. Um, and then by fifth and sixth grade, I was able to play like travel teams. So I think I just kind of had a knack for it and a passion for it. Um, and I, my parents are super supportive of it. You know, we had a court in the drive or a hoop in the driveway and I would just go out there and it's funny, there's all these trainers and everything now, and I'm a big fan of skills trainers. Um, but I spent plenty of time just on the driveway by myself and like seeing, I don't know how we saw videos at that time. YouTube wasn't quite around. I don't know, you might see stuff on TV and try to like, you know, do the moves on your driveway or, you know, get with a friend or something like that. And so there's actually, um, our neighbors across the street, there were two boys, one was three years older than me, one was six years older than me, and their friends would come over there and play basketball. It's like, I think I was like five or six years old and they let me come over and play with them. And like, for me, that made a huge difference. You know, they're like allowing me to shoot and stuff like that. Um, but eventually I was able to compete with them as I got older through grade school and through middle school and things like that. So I think that kind of helped in like my development and just kind of building a toughness within me um, is playing with older guys and playing in the neighborhood. Um, then I played at North Central High School. So that's where Eric Gordon from the Houston Rockets, he went to school there. Um, one of my teammates, uh, Brianna Bass, she's now on the staff at Indiana University. She played at Tennessee. 
Uh, Amber Harris played there. She's playing in Korea now, but she was drafted to the Minnesota Lynx out of college. So um, I was just in a great basketball culture, like a great school uh, for basketball. And they taught the fundamentals early on. Um, then from high school, I went to Oakland University up in Michigan. And um, I ended up transferring out of there. And I played for a coach who ended up getting fired for psychological abuse. Um, so that is probably a whole podcast on its own, <laughs> but I will, I will get into that just a little bit from saying that, um, experiencing that as a player, I think has helped me to be a better coach, um, and giving me an insight on, you know, what, how I like to be talked to, what I didn't like, um, you know, what things can be offensive and things like that, because there, there's a fine line a lot of times on pushing a kid and just going way, way too far. Um, so sometimes there's a fine line and sometimes it's pretty clear. So I've kind of learned a lot about that um, from being a player. But anyways, from there, I went to Wabash Valley College in Illinois, played a year there, kind of got my confidence back, um, you know, played for a coach and kind of let me do my thing there. And then I got recruited um, and played at Coastal Carolina for my last two years. And so I absolutely love Coastal Carolina. I'd been through the recruiting experience a few times at this point, and I was able to decipher like which coaches were talking about what. And um, I was also being recruited by Memphis too. Um, and just from the language, I think, you know, Memphis, they, they liked me as a player, but I was probably gonna be more like a bench player, a backup player there, um, which makes sense based on most of my recruitment was more mid-major than, than Memphis. So. Um, I figured that at Coastal Carolina, I'd be able to play a lot more and have more of an impactful role there. And um, I wasn't like fantastic or anything there, but I was a two-year starter. Um, I had a great experience, got my education. Um, and then I went on and played it in Czech Republic. So for one year professionally. And so that was just a tremendous experience. Um, learning a different culture, um, you know, that's a dream come true, playing professional basketball. So um I don't know, I feel like I just said a lot of stuff. So do you, do we want to take no, that, a break and ask about any part in there? Or? <laughs> this is like Brian said, this is the story we love. And, and, and the way we operate is you're just fueling us with great conversational questions through your story. So, so take us from, from coming home from Czech. Obviously now you're probably transitioning into coaching, right? So yeah. uh, talk, talk us through that journey and, 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 then, and then we'll follow back up with you on the backside of that. Okay. Um, so while I was in Myrtle Beach, I linked up with a, an alumni, a men's basketball alumni, um, Colin Stevens. He runs a Manager Basketball Academy in Myrtle Beach, and it's, it was just starting up when I was finishing college, and, um, you know, he's got it going pretty well now, pretty strong now. But so he, he allowed me to train, to be a trainer there, um, and I was able to coach a couple of AU teams, like just sixth grade, like just to get my feet wet, basically, like just getting the role of being a mentor to, to young girls, basketball players. Um, and basically kind of like experiment with that, like see if that's something I like. And I loved it because it's, you're involved with basketball. It's always been my nature to try to like, try to make a positive impact and try to people influence people in a positive way. Um, so I was able to do that. I did that for a couple of summers in between my other stuff that I was doing. Um, and so when I came back from overseas, I was doing that. And then also I was waiting on my agent to find a new contract for me. And so it's getting into like September and she's still looking and trying to negotiate with people. And I'm like, well, I'm just going to apply for coaching jobs because that's what I want to do eventually. Um, 
and I, I was at peace with whatever comes first is the route I was going to go. And so I had a coaching opportunity at Division Three Thomas College, and it was for a $3,000 stipend, <laughs> um, but I knew it was my foot in the door. And so I think this part of the story is kind of interesting because you hear, I've seen different trends on Twitter right now um, talking about your journey or coaching path. I think it's awesome because, you know, you've got players that have played at, you know, Notre Dame, UConn, some pretty prestigious schools where um, they might have an easier way in just because of their sororities that they've come from within their colleges. Um, and then you've got people like me who just kind of randomly got in there and, they have some other type of story. And like, I don't think any story is better or worse than the other. They're just all unique experiences. And I think it's encouraging to know that there's so many different routes to get to your dreams and goals. So that's the biggest takeaway out of that. Um, so I was coaching at Thomas College. I was working a 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. job at a warehouse where I probably should have been like a supervisor, not like a floor worker, <laughs> you know, with my college degree. And again, that's not any offense to anyone who has any different job, you know, degree or not degree, um, work is work, you know? <laughs> so I was doing that. I'd come home, I'd sleep till like 1 PM, wake up, go work out and then do the, uh, coaching thing. And that was, you know, the expectation wasn't that I'm in there all the time cause I'm getting $3,000 for the whole year. Um, so, you know, I'd go in there, do practices, help game plan and all that stuff. And then after practice, I was working on my master's degree online uh, before I went to work again that night. So I did that. I did that schedule for about three or four months and I was like exhausted. Um, so for the second part of the season, I had enough money to pay rent, um, feed myself. So I quit the job and I was doing some substitute teaching because that came available all while doing my first year of like college coaching. Um, then from there, which was awesome, it just that was the hardest year. I call it like my, my grindingest grind or, you know, the most you've ever grinded before in your life. Um, and that still might be, I, you know, I'd rather work during the day hours. I think that still might be like the most challenging time or hardest time on my body uh, I've had. So from there though, it just tells you that you have stamina. You're able to do things. You're able to push yourself harder than what you thought you could push yourself. Um, so that set a good foundation for myself as far as coaching goes. Um, then I had an opportunity to work with my head coach, Zach Lowell. He's now at Dodge City Community College um, at Wabash Valley. So I was at Wabash Valley for two years. I think coaching at a JUCO is one of the coolest experiences in, a, in the world. Um, for a lot of reasons, you're impacting kids that have come from all kinds of walks of life. They could be there because they have behavioral kind of problems or issues. Um, maybe they just want more exposure from a basketball standpoint. Maybe they had trouble with their academics. Um, there's so many different stories there, but there are so many tremendous young women in junior college. Like they're good people, you know? And I think those people get overlooked a lot of times because of whatever stories or things that have happened to them in their life. So um, it's cool to try to have an impact on them and help them get to their next phase of life. Then from like a professional standpoint, um, you're doing everything. It's you and your head coach. And, you know, I'm living in the dorms. I'm checking up on them, making sure they're keeping the dorms clean, making sure they're not getting too rowdy up there. Um, you know, I have the opportunity to recruit high school kids, recruit transfers. I'm trying to get these kids out to four-year school. So I met, you know, other four-year coaches. And, and through that, I met a lot of great D2, D1 coaches that were looking to mentor me. Um, 
And, you know, for example, like Chester Nichols, he, he's at Wichita State now. He was at West Virginia. And you can ask him maybe what his perspective was, but he was willing to help me out. He ended up getting one of our players. But my goal was every time Coach Nichols texted me for something, I'd have it right to him, you know, just to develop that rapport of credibility. Like, he needs a transcript. Here you go. He needs to set up a time to talk to our player. Here you go. Like, just trying to be, you know, be counted on, be reliable. That kind of, Like, do the little things. Um, and so through Wabash Valley, I actually met uh, Coach Eads, Alan Eads, who is who's that's who I'm taking over for at Missouri S&T. Um, and so I was an assistant coach for him for one year at Missouri S&T. Um, so again, it's another type of grind, but you have a little bit more resources at that level. Or I think we did. I think it just depends which D2, which school you're at, which D2, which junior college, that kind of thing. Um, so there's a little bit more resources, a little bit more structure in your schedule with the NCAA rules and things like that. Um, and then I got my first D1 job after that. And so the way I got my D1 job is I got caught working hard. <laughs> I was recruiting here in Indianapolis, actually, and I was at a game on a Sunday morning, uh, one of the earlier games where people might be more inclined to sleep in or, you know, whatever. Maybe you're, you're feeling a little slacky on a Sunday, you know. And uh, I was watching a game. And I happened to be there with Kyle Recklitz, who's the head coach at uh, Milwaukee right now. And we got to talking. And so actually, she played at my high school. Um, her name was Kyle Black at that time. She's, um, you know, she's older than me, but she was a player. I was like, wait, are you Kyle Black? Because like, that was a player that like, I looked up to. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is Kyle Black. Like, she's a hooper. Like, <laughs> and so, um, but we, were, we just ended up talking and everything. And I guess I presented myself well, and that was a name that she wanted to take down. So that was like in an April. Then June of that year, she calls me out of the blue. She's like, hey, can you talk? I'm like, yeah, of course. She's like, well, we have a position open. Would you be interested in interviewing for it? And so um, all of that panned out. And so I worked for her for a year, which is awesome because going into a program that's already been established, she's already got 20 wins. You know, she's been winning 20 games a season for the last couple years. At that time, I'm going in. Um, we get to the WNIT. We win a WNIT game. So just learning a lot about a program that's already been established. Um, and so all this stuff is going to this opportunity I have right now. So when I look at her, what Kyle has done, she's super, like, very good with organization, very good with managing um, everything that head coach has to manage, very good with working with administration. Um, and I think her X's and O's are really, really good. Like, I love X's and O's, and I grew a lot learning from her. Um, and watching her in-game adjustments and her drops. So if you guys need somebody to, like, kind of learn that stuff from. And she's also was, like, a really good recruiter at Dayton when she was an assistant coach. So um, all of that, a lot of that comes down to organization, though. So I learned that from her. Um, then I had a couple of mentors kind of link me up with my, pre my job I just left at Sam Houston State, uh, Raven Justice. Um, she had just taken over the head coaching role at Sam Houston after coming from Prairie View. And, um, you know, it was a good opportunity for me to learn the rebuilding side. Um, I did get a little bit of a financial raise from that position. So just a couple of things just kind of lined up. And so I went that direction, went down to Texas, um, ate a lot of Mexican food and Tex-Mex, ate some good barbecue. <laughs> but um, more importantly, I learned what it takes to rebuild a program. And so in our, we took over a team that won four games. Our first year we won 16 and this past year uh, we won 19 and that's without our conference tournament. So 
we were definitely bummed just like all the teams were, but we really felt like, you know, we were definitely going to get 20 wins and we had a good bracket to, you know, to make some noise in that tournament. But um, so, yeah, and, and what I've learned from Raven is, uh, you know, accountability and relationships. And, you know, we had a lot of the same players that the previous team had um, and we were able to get them to perform at a high level and at a different level than, than what they'd performed before. And like our style of play was different, um, which I don't know. It's all about hard work. It's dribble drive and up tempo. That's hard work. It doesn't take a lot of, I mean, yeah, you want skilled players for certain spots, but it's hard work. Um, and so she just demanded such a high level and, and held the kids accountable. But I think the biggest thing with that accountability is having good relationships with your players because, you know, you guys don't know me too well, but if I say like, Hey, go do this. I, you guys are going to maybe do it, maybe not. Cause you don't know if you can trust me yet. You don't know, you know, what's our relationship. You don't know. Now, if I sit here and tell you guys, I care about you guys and want to get to know what, what makes you tick. Um, you're going to know that I care about you and, and maybe there's some credibility there and there's a reason for you to listen to me. So I think she's really good at player relationships. Um, and she's tough and she's tough on the kids. She's, she holds us accountable. Um, and, uh, She's demanding, but not, I don't mean that in a negative way. I think demanding has a negative connotation sometimes. She just expect, has high expectations. Um, but I think everything she expects is achievable. So she just holds you accountable for, for achieving what you want to achieve, really. And uh, this year, my former head coach at ST, he retired. And, um, you know, I was in touch with the administrative staff there. And, you know, I had good relationships with everybody there. So... Um, kind of got into the process there. And, but uh, what's kind of interesting is there's a new athletic director that was transitioning in there during my interview process. So um, the old athletic director kind of helped me get in there, but then I had to like, I had to work for my, <laughs> my spot, you know, <laughs> I didn't just get it because, because I'd been there before. Um, and so I did get good feedback. So if we're thinking about like feedback for other coaches, I got really good feedback on my portfolio, my professional portfolio. Um, and if anyone wants to know about that, like if that comes out later and we need contact information, Brian, like feel free to share that and we can get into more depth with that. Um, but for me, it was 30 pages talking about my coaching philosophy, my resumes included, um, my coaching philosophy, kind of my recruiting philosophy. Um, I included quite a bit of X's and O's. I don't know if this mattered or not, but actually my New AD, she likes it because she was a basketball coach, so that might have helped me a little bit. But I feel like as a first-time head coach, it would be good to put some X's and O's in there just to see a plan that, you know, even though I haven't run a program before, I do have a plan for what to do with this. Um, had my 30-day, 60-day plan in there. Um, how I'm going to turn – well, had culture-building things, budget things. Um, you know, basically what my mentality is about how to deal with all these head coaching things that you have to do and responsibilities. And uh, so, yeah, I got good feedback on that. And I made it on Canva, canva.com. It's free. Um, if you're not good with graphic design or, or resumes or anything like that, they have really, really good templates there. It does take a little bit of time for a user to get friendly with the user usage of it. Sorry. Um, but if you need anything to help with your social media, your professional stuff, like your resume portfolio, or if you just need to make flyers for a camp, canva.com is a great resource uh for coaches for sure so wow now i will tell yeah. you right now immediately 
couple of things come right off the bat. So if I was having sitting here with an interview with you, you're an extremely bright woman without question and extremely thoughtful into everything that happens. I know that's as a coach, that's one of the things I'm constantly pushing for is people to think critically about every situation you come across. Because as basketball players, that's what we have to do, right? You get in the game, you got to make quick decisions and they have to have some thought that goes behind them. So how in-depth and thoughtful that you've been from, from the beginning is very impressive at a young age. Like we're all the geezers. So, you know, for us, it's, you know, it's what we do, but for, for at a young age, you're, you're doing quite, quite well. So kind of quite a, I got a bunch of notes here. There's a bunch of things to unpack, so to speak. Um, but one of the things that you obviously, you know, your, your parents were super supportive, which was awesome. And you were able to kind of explore your love for the game as a kid playing, playing up. And then you were able to use that exploration kind of as when you took on those sixth graders that AAU program to coach. Now, my very first team coaching was 11 and under AAU girls team. So I can imagine what that was like. So, and Gino, I know I said this very often, like, if you want to learn how to coach, go coach some bad players. You know, because then you'll you'll learn how to you know kind of do your thing. So, I guess uh, share with us a little bit about your first revelations from those those early days of coaching with the, with those little kids. Hmm, that's a great question. Um, I think you know I think relationships is cliche, but I think it's real. I think um, what helps me out is I had enough maturity about myself where I could where the parents would trust me. But I was tuned in enough where um, I knew what the kids were talking about. I knew what was going on with social media at that time. I knew what they were experiencing. Um, they were able to tell me what they didn't like about their high school programs and um, and like kind of how we could make it fun with the style of play. And, you know, they looked up to me still, which was different. And I think you have to realize where you are. And I'm still figuring that out. Like right now it's different. I'm in between. I'm like, I'm young, but I'm not that young anymore. <laughs> but I'm not old. So, um, but at that time, it's like, I still have that credibility. I'm fresh off of being a professional basketball player. So, you know, they're going to listen to me. So I want to make sure that what I'm telling them is good advice and it lives up to their hopes, you know? Um, I think something I've learned too is like to trust myself. Um, Cause I think I've second guessed myself on different things and um, I actually think a lot, I've learned a lot about myself through this whole like COVID thing. Cause there's more of these zoom calls and you're talking to different people and there's more self-reflection on that. Um, sorry, that's kind of a little side tangent. Um, but I, I don't know. I just enjoyed it. I enjoyed being in the gym with them every day. I enjoyed, uh, helping them. I enjoyed seeing their joy on their faces when we went to games and enjoyed watching them figure stuff out or, you know, when the timing of a play works, right? They're like, oh, it works. And like, you know, you guys all have that moment like, well, yeah, that's what's supposed to happen. But there's so there is a little sense of magic about it, you know, when when a kid sees it happen and the everything starts clicking. Um, so I really enjoyed that. And uh, you know, Brian kind of mentioned to me before we might be talking about purpose. So I'll go ahead and throw that in there right now. Um, I'm like a spiritual religious person, uh, you know, non-denominational Christian now. I was grew up as a Catholic. Um but a lot of what I do is based on my relationship with Jesus and, and as a Christian. And so I believe my purpose in life is to love God. And I love God through serving people. 
Um, I believe part of my God-given passion was basketball. And so I've just been put in situations where everything can kind of line up. Um, so my whole why for wanting to coach is so that I can kind of execute my purpose in life um, by, by serving people um, in any capacity. Like, so maybe with my players or maybe I'm in a position where people might kind of look up to me in a certain way. So just making sure, try to use my voice in a positive manner to, to impact people. Um, and then my passion. My passion is the game of basketball. I, I love being competitive. And I've also had mentors who have who've been huge in impacting my life. So that's my why. And um, I think those things kind of became more apparent through that first stage of, of working with that sixth grade team. Now, you, you've got uh, quite the journey and the experience, whether it was, you know, playing at three different schools. Um, you know, you can now look back on that. Uh, as well as the coaches you've worked for. Um, but going back to those playing days, uh, as a player, you know, you went to Oakland, then Wabash, and then Coastal Carolina. Like, what can you take from those experiences and or what have you taken that has kind of molded you uh, into the type of coach or the style of coach uh, that you are now? Um, I think work ethic is the biggest thing. I athletically shouldn't have been a division one or professional basketball player. Like I don't, I'm not going to be the fastest kid on the court. Um, I am pretty physically strong. So I, I do recognize that, but I don't jump the highest. I'm not the fastest, but I worked on my craft like endlessly. So I, I'm a very skilled player because I worked on those skills. So I'm, my mid range is really good. Um, part of why it's really good is because I understand my angles. I understand the psychology of it, you know, what you're doing. Um, I have a good basketball IQ, but all that stuff was learned, you know, that wasn't something I, I mean, there might be certain things I have a knack for, you know, you know, I, I have a certain level of intelligence, but like, how far do you push that to grow? Um, you know, so learning the game, watching, watching the game, um, working on it, you know, I love working out, I love doing skill workouts, um, you know, I did what I could to get myself to be faster and quicker, you know, it does have a cap on it <laughs> but um you know doing what you can so that your weakness isn't going to keep you on the bench you know at least it's good enough to get you on the court and I do have a kind of like a little philosophy about that um I don't know if you guys have done the strengths finder uh book or test um I forget who does it but it's a personality test basically it tells you what your strengths are and so one of mine is I'm a maximizer so I'm gonna do what I do well and not worry so much about what I don't do well um, and just so in terms of basketball, I'm a really good mid-range shooter, okay? So let's say, let's say I started out at a – we're going to go to scale 1 to 10. Let's say I'm a, a 8 at mid-range jump shooter, okay? Let's say my defense is a level 2. If I work my butt off as a defender, I'll probably only get to a level 5 defender. But if I work my butt off at being a mid-range shooter, I'm going to get to a level 10. I'm going to be unstoppable, and that's going to be something I can do to keep me on the court. Now, the defensive thing, I'm not saying don't work it on it at all. Like, do what you need to do to, to have a role and not be a liability to your team. Um, but do something – find something where you're going to be unstoppable and you're going to have a role in that. And mine happened to be a scoring aspect. But, I mean, maybe for some players, be the best rebounder. Be a Dennis Rodman on the boards, you know. Um, or be the best defender, you know, even if you're not the best scorer. So, I, I'm a maximizer. And I think that's something we can carry over into coaching, you know. Um, if you're good at X's and O's, keep getting better X's and O's. If you're not great at player relationships, work on it, but maybe get an assistant coach that's really, really good at it and understands the psychology of people 
and just don't be an asshole, you know, <laughs> like if you're not great at it. So find a way to keep yourself where people want to play for you. But maybe it's because you're just such a good, you're a, a nerd of the game. You're so great at the X's and O's of it. So I think, um, and everyone's different. You know, I've seen people take their weaknesses and make them a strength, but that's my mentality is be a maximizer. I think that, I think that, so, so I'm, I, I promise there's a question on the back end of this. Okay. But like, okay. I, that's the one thing I learned when, I, when, when I, you know, was living in Indy and, and working with club and, and high school, it's, it's the one thing that I learned is that, you know, you got a bunch of players who all want to play at the next level. Cause it's just born and bred there. Right. You, you said it basketball's raised in, in Indiana and, and it's just in their blood. And I've never experienced anywhere else that it was that to a core, but the one common DNA strand was the work ethic. Cause I, I really thought those kids, they, they worked at a different level than, or grind or whatever you want to call it. But like we threw the kitchen sink to them and they just was like, get me more type of thing. So I want to fast forward. And, and so you, you touched on a little bit of, you know, surround yourself with good people as it relates to your strengths and your weaknesses. I, I was fortunate to get a taste of being a head coach at a junior college level. So I was able to kind of test it, but not at the level that I think you're going to be able to have because of staffing. Right. So, so kind of go into, you know, you, you talked about that, that, you know, 30, 60 day plan, so what is that plan and, and what are you focused on in, over the next, I'd say, you know, two weeks and then four weeks? Um, so I've heard this analogy like a spider web before, like work inside then out. So that's kind of the mentality, like I'm going to take that approach and then, you know, maybe it's not perfect because it's my first time. Um, but so far what I've really been trying to do is in working inside working on starting to develop relationships with my players. Um, so, so far I'll try to contact them. There's 12 of them. So, you know, contact them once, once or twice a week, you know, text them, call them. And then we've started to do some zoom calls, just 30 minute calls, introductory, trying to do team bonding stuff. Um, so I'm trying to, you know, work on building that trust right now, especially while we don't have an urgency to put a system in at this moment. Um, when they get to campus, we'll worry more about the basketball stuff. But right now I need to try to show them that I care. Um, then, you know, getting to know the other coaches in the department. Some of them I do know since I was there before, but there are also a lot of new people. So getting to know who's in the department, um, our athletic department is trying to figure out our budget. This is a heck of a year to be a first time head coach. And for all head coaches that are, you know, we're all doing a first time situation. Um, so trying to figure out the budget, uh, just trying to figure out how everything works as far as like housing, where my players living, um, figuring out, you know, what are their schedules going to be like academically and how can we make gym time and stuff like that. Um, then, you know, I want to get to know more people on campus, try to get to know more professors, um, get to know people in admissions. You know, we're going to need people to help us out. So I need to, you know, I need to reach out to those people um, and then eventually try to get to know boosters and things like that so we can build up some fundraising. So that's my initial thought. Um, I'm sure there's gonna be some curveballs in there that I didn't quite expect, or maybe I'm gonna have to reroute on something. Um, but I think that's part of the plan too, is just being adaptable. So knowing that this isn't all gonna be perfect, um, but being ready to you know, prepare what I can in advance, but then if I can't have stuff prepared, uh, just be ready and have my mind ready to um, adapt and be flexible. Because I think, I think all of us, a hard part of this whole COVID situation is 
we were hit with a curveball that we did not expect. So that's caused a lot of issues for all of us. Um, but if you can anticipate something, you're if you're prepared for the unprepared or, you know, the unimaginable, then you're more prepared for it just because your mindset's a little bit different. I love what you said there that just a second ago, as, as you were saying, adaptable, I was, that's really what I want. I was literally thinking that this young woman has already perfected that and you were near and dear to this show uh, on a lot of things, but I want to go back to that year. You talked about the, the $3,000 a year stipend and, and you know, I, I'm just going to tell you now, us old heads, that's the story that you file away and you bring it out. And then when you're in your 20th year of head coaching, you're still telling that story. And then your coach, your players are going to roll their eyes and be like, coach is going to drop the $3,000 a year score. But that's a gem. And, and I think that when you talk about, you know, transformational re uh, relationships, which is a big deal on our show, and, and I love the way you framed it in your story, but, but that one can't be uh can't be uh diminished how important that foundational year i know you already know it because you talked about it but is going to be a part of you and, and your story and and, and I, i'll speak for the group but you know massive fans of what you've already accomplished and, and we can't wait to follow what you're doing forward so having said all that leading into my question is you you dropped in you said hey this could be a whole podcast but we've talked about on that idea of that that forced you to change away from that experience at Oakland uh, and, and that it was a negative experience. But how through that did it help you adapt and create maybe a different mindset, you know, a, a negative experience that then became a positive and sort of, you know, and, and dive into that as far as you want to go. But just in a sense of, uh, you, you know, your adaptability probably is in your DNA uh, already but then here's you're thrown at something you didn't expect, like you just alluded to. And we don't really know the COVID thing on the back end, but we know that experience for you there, you know, kind of frame that experience into leaping you forward in that concept of adaptability. Um, I mean, a big thing for me was my faith in my family uh, because when, when everything kind of happened there, um, I, so the, the long story short of it is I got kicked off the team um, for I said that I was ready for the season to be over in the locker room and like some seniors like told on me or something. Um, and that was literally all I did that was wrong. And like, yes, that was negative. <laughs> um, but I was a 3.7 GPA student. I went to all eight of my study hall hours a week. I didn't drink um, at all. Like I was like a goody two shoe <laughs> freshman in college. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, I still to this day don't know why it happened. I don't know if she needed to clear a roster spot. And as a coach, I could understand maybe she had somebody she wanted instead of me or, or needed to clear up a scholarship. I don't know. That's speculation. Um, but I felt so embarrassed that I like got kicked off of a team or, or, you know, however we want to word it. Um, and I didn't want to talk to anybody. And, you know, I talked to my parents, of course, but Outside of that, like, I was so afraid to call my high school coach. Um, but when I opened up and told my close friends and told my close, like, coaches are close to me, like, they were very supportive. So, like, I learned that, like, the people that are really there for you, nothing is as bad as you actually think it is. Like, there's people that are there to support you. Um, now, it can be hard to find those. I'm lucky that I have always had those people in my life from the very beginning. Um, the other thing was, like, I fell back on my faith. Um, 
and you know, everyone doesn't have to be a Christian or whatever, but whatever kind of like faith or foundation you have in yourself that kind of gives you a calm, like, I think that's important. You know, some people don't believe in a higher being or, or whatever the deal is, but find something that brings you back to center, I think. Um, and so there was a time where like, you know, she was saying we were, I was suspended indefinitely and we had to meet. And, you know, so I, I wrote her a letter saying that I was sorry for how my actions could be negative and how that's bad for the team. And so through like kind of prayer and talking to my family, I decided personally that like, if she's going to have me back, so I'm going to come back. I'm going to apologize. I'm going to be the best team I could possibly be if I come back. But if she doesn't want me to come back, I'm going to go on to a next school. I'm going to go to a new option. And that's where my life is going to go. Like, that's the path that's for me. Um, and so, you know, I, I wrote her this letter saying, like, you know, I'm sorry. I'll do whatever I can do to be a good teammate. And, and I walked into my meeting. And all that was said is, we think you'd be happier at another school. So it's just, it was like that. Like there is no other explanation of, well, you're bad at this or you're this. It was just, no, you're, so I didn't really dispute it because I was already at peace with what was going to happen. And I honestly felt like a, a, a house was lifted off my shoulders just because it was relief. And I knew what the next step was. Um, and then, so I think, you know, after that I had, I got like four or five offers from JUCO in division two schools right after that. Um, so I don't know. So the, the whole adaptability thing is, is coming from having good people around you. Cause I think, I think once you realize that you are more than an athlete, more than a coach, um, you find peace in that. And that's a hard concept because athletics seemingly defines us for so long. And again, that's a whole nother, that's another thing we could get into because I mean, student athletes, even coaches need to hear this. We're competitive people. We think that wins and losses define us. Um, you know, we think that people are going to disown us if we don't win a certain amount of games or, or if we don't reach a certain level. Um, and a lot of those are made up thoughts in our own head. Because if we go talk to our family members, talk to someone that cl that's close to you, they're going to say like, I'll love you if you go work at Walmart today. Like, I'm still going to love you. Like, you're still a great person. Um, so I think once you can have that inner peace, I think it's easier to be adaptable. Um, I think you're less shaken by stressful situations because at that core, you know that you have a solid core there. Um, are there still stresses and anxiety? 100% all the time. <laughs> but for me, I have to rationalize things out. Like, I don't know, whatever fears I have about this year coming up, because I do have some, I can break them. I go, I go through a step. I'm like, well, okay, well, what if that happens? Well, what if that happens? Okay, what if you get fired? Okay, what if you can't get another job? And then you start breaking it all down, but then you find a solution at the bottom of that. Well, well, I'm a smart person. I have a bachelor's degree. I have a master's degree. I, I can do something else if worse comes to worse. Like, you know, I still have my family. I still have my friends. So, for me, I have to like kind of rationalize it and break it down. Um, but I think when you know that we have a core, you're not afraid to take risks either. And you're not afraid to, to encounter the unknown. So that was a very long answer. <laughs> no, that's, that's a great answer. And I think what you're saying is, and some of it's a lot of what we've talked about is that we're all human beings first before any of it. You know, you take the, the, the logos on the shirts and all those things away. And we're all just people. And when you lose perspective on that aspect of it, 
that I think you get caught up in the wins and losses and you stop treating people like people and start treating them as commodities or tools to help you win or tools to help you feel better about yourself. I don't know. I think when you start looking at people as abstractions, I think it starts to, uh, you know, you start going in the opposite direction where you kind of had to suffer through, you know, that. And, you know, maybe you didn't win a lot of games and it's easier for, for a coach or someone else to blame, you know, an off, off the cuff comment in a locker room for a loss than, you know, maybe the hundred other things that caused it, meaning the mental abuse and some of the other things that were, that were going on. So, um, but I do think we forget to do that. And clearly it feels like for me, just listening to you, that that was kind of your wake up moment to that, you know, you said, you know, you're, you're a competing athlete, you're trying to win, you're doing all these things, but that's kind of the moment when you realize, well, yeah, I'm doing all this stuff, but I'm not just a basketball player. I'm a person. Is that fair? Kind of. I mean, I think that's an ongoing struggle through your college career. I mean, you have waves of it because, you know, even a Wabash Valley was pretty good experience, but that's because everything was great. You know, I was <laughs> averaging 15 points a game, getting five rebounds. Like I was, you know, I was doing good, you know. The team's doing decent. You know, I'm getting recruited. Life is good. Um, but then Coastal, Coastal Carolina, you know, we didn't win. Like, you know, it was up and down. Um, and, you know, once your playing time gets played with here and there, like stuff happens, you know, adversity happens, and you're so caught up in this game and what you want to do, um, your goals through the game, that it's it's easy to lose kind of perspective of, of what's real. And people, you know, people try to tell you, well, there's going to be life after college. No, there's not. There's a game on Saturday. I have to be good for this game on Saturday. Like, I don't know what you mean. Like, <laughs> and so I think, um, I mean, I think that's just an ongoing thing. I think as coaches, maybe, I don't know how we do that exactly, but I think that's something we can be conscious of. Um, and I think people criticize the millennials and Gen Z a lot uh, because they're softer. Really, there's more in touch with their feelings. They're more... Um, they're probably more intellectual than everybody else, actually. <laughs> They're just more in tune of, of how the brain works. Um, and so because they know about these things, they feel these things. Whereas before, people had feelings. They just didn't know what they were, so they didn't feel them. So now I think it's more relevant. Um, so I think we need to try to be more in tune with that because it's going to be an ongoing battle, the whole identity thing. It's always a battle. And... There's people having bigger identity battles, especially in women's basketball. They're deciding, like, do they like boys? Do they like girls? That's another ordeal for them. Uh, who are they as a person? What do they want to be after this? Like, there's just so many things that, as a coach, we're not always have the solutions, but maybe we can try to make ourselves open to be able to have those conversations with them or be open to listen. Um, I agree. And encourage them and, and let them know that, like, you know, you're you're more than your four-point game you just had the other day, and you're more than that 20-point game that you had two weeks ago. Like, you're more than that. Like, you're an awesome person. You're creative. You're good at this. You're good at this. And maybe trying to encourage them. And, like, you know, I think, I think the kind of old-school ways of coaching is kind of gone now. I think it's more people are positively motivated now. And that's not to say we can't be hard on them or they don't need consequences because that's – we still need all that stuff. But I think there needs to be a better ratio of positivity, um, especially now more than ever. And, and maybe it should have been there before, but that's just people were different. 
And yeah, we've talked about that in the show a little bit. And it's, it, it is certainly – You know, especially when we were young, there were no cell phones that you could, you know, pull up the whole world on. You know, you didn't have a computer in your hand. And obviously, you're a different generation, so you had more access than we did. But you're absolutely right. The access to information and the ability to process feelings and thoughts and articulate those thoughts at a younger age is available to kids now. And we have to be aware and be okay with doing that and having our vulnerable moments as well to show that we're in the same same boat. So I think... You are right on with that. And I think, you know, as far as relationships go with players, and you keep that attitude, you're going to be a superstar. I mean, it sounds good right here. <laughs> you know, it's easy to talk about. So, what do you, what do you think, um, but hopefully I can do those things. <laughs> no, definitely. This, uh, speaking for myself, like this platform, uh, this show, um, hearing the stories uh, of a lot of our guests is not only inspirational to me, uh, but it's also kind of allowing me to kind of reflect on how I am as a coach, you know, entering my 21st year, like I'm not going to stop learning. Once I do that, just give me a shovel and let me dig my grave because it's over, you know? So I always want to evolve. I always want to uh, grow and learn. And, you know, I feel like this show has really kind of helped accelerate that for me. Um, and hearing your, you know, your story, your journey, the things you've learned, um, man, I think you, you've got a really good bright future, uh, ahead of you. And, um, you know, I'd hate to be on the other end of that sideline. Uh, you know, if I'm still doing this in 10 years or whatnot, but, uh, uh I just want to kind of, uh, take it back to now the, the kind of the on court. Now you're heading into your first head coaching collegiate job. Uh, in, you know, at Utah, we have our pillars. Uh, we got family, you got toughness, passion, compete, and I can dive into those and give you uh, a lot of explanation about that, but it's not about me here. It's about you. So what I want to hear, uh, no more than four, when we fast forward and we're watching uh, Missouri S&T play, what are you hoping? Uh, what are your pillars? What are your cornerstones? So when we walk into the gym and we uh, buy our bag of popcorn and beverage of choice watching you guys play, what are the four things that your team, your players are going to know uh, are the cornerstones of your basketball program? I know you said four, but I have five. Okay, five. I'll, I'll give you this like one. All right, five. good, good. <laughs> okay, so attitude, effort, energy, commitment, and together. Um, and so for me, the thing that things that those things have in common are they're all controllable. Um, so even if we're losing, you're going to know that that you're going to be able to see our attitude. You know, you're going to see if we're having a positive or negative attitude. You're going to see how good our effort is. You're going to see that we play with energy. Um, you're going to see that our kids are committed um, just because they're going to play that hard and they're going to do their best and give their best effort. And then togetherness, um, just having each other's back. So that's the culture that I kind of hope to implement. Um, and it's not going to happen immediately, you know, because they're coming off of a different person. Um, and the togetherness, that's going to be hard, you know. That's challenging because people have their friends on the team. And, and from talking to our team, our team gets along really well. Um, but they have their friends they're a little closer with. And so just I need them to know that they can count on everyone on the team if they need something. Um, so I think that'll be – togetherness might be, like, one of the biggest things early on. Um, and those other things will come together because they're going to end up doing those other things for one another. 
That's good. Um, and I, I'm going to toss it around to these guys too, because every one of us have been, has been a part of uh, taking over a program. Um, you know, Brian's heading into year two, so he can jot this down as well. Year one is going to be the honeymoon. <laughs> year two is going to be the toughest year coaching, unless you graduated everybody. And then year three is really where you got to kind of let that foundation dry. Um, I know, Tony, you've been a part of taking over programs. Jesse, Brian, you can kind of add in. But that's just my two cents. Year one, enjoy it. <laughs> year two, be ready to work harder than year one. And then year three, uh, let's get that thing off and running. What, uh, what are you most afraid of? Or what makes you most nervous about taking over a program? I think it's always failure, you know. Um, and I think, you know, that first year things are going to be fine because there's not an expectation. Um, but after that, you know, it's it's on me. You know, it's on me to make things happen. It's on me to show progress. But that comes in year one, you know, by establishing that foundation, whether it reflects or not on the scoreboard. Um, yeah, I think just failing, you know, and – you know, there's people like you guys that see a lot of potential in me and think that I'm going to be great. But I love those expectations, too, at the same time, because I'm positively motivated as well. I've never been a person that does things out of spite. Like, like that Oakland coach will never get credit for anything. <laughs> like, I'm not going to say, like, oh, I showed her. <laughs> did I learn from her? Yeah, I did learn from her. But I'm going to say, like, you know, I was pushed by these people that motivated me by – by you guys encouraging me, um, by my friends and family encouraging me, by other coaching colleagues encouraging me. Um, so yeah, just a fear of failure from a general standpoint. I'll, and I I'll, think I'll let hold. Go ahead. I'll let Jesse asked the last question, but I just want to. I just want to. Again, I. I mean, we're pumping you, right? But but it's because of what you're laying out, like your body of work has been impressive. Hearing from you now directly is impressive. Um, and, and I think if there's, if there's one thing that the reason why you may be feeling it from us is because we've seen a lot of people fail because this wasn't their story or they weren't talking like, like you're not coming off like someone with a bunch of quotes. Like you're, you're bringing, now you may have quotes, but you're bringing like the lessons, you're bringing the experience of, of you having to choose A or B, right? And, and I think mm -hmm. when, when A is always there in front of you and you're not forced to decide on anything, you, you may not know what the other side is. So I just encourage you to, to test everything. Um, go in it with gang, like gangbusters and just be who you are and don't, don't worry. I, I think there's so many people who worry about now that you've, you have that position, that you have to change for, for any other reason, but like you're, 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 you are who you are because of exactly the story and, and the journey that you told us. So if there's anything we can do, um, I, I think you're long beyond us, but if there's anything we can do, uh, you know, let us know. Cause it's a, it's a very impressive story. I appreciate that. Well, I'm going to need to do some fundraising. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right away. Okay. I like it. See that? Right. That is a fundraiser. I like it. That, that is huge. Look, I already have it planned out. All these people have said anything they can do for me. There's going to be that go, that, uh, crowdfund link. Good for you. All right, guys.
for all the 500 people that, that liked and commented when I got this job and said, hey, if you need anything, this is your moment. <laughs> Listen, $5 from each of those people. There you go. There's a new That's what I'm saying. That's the plan. Right there, yeah. I can see it. I can see it on your Twitter right now. Exactly that statement. You're going to put it right out there. Hey, for all y'all that liked when I got hired, I need $5. Here's the GoFund uh, uh, account. Exactly. And, and, and you know, I, I'll say this too, sort of to, to dovetail with the guys who said, you know, when we talk about, you know, your fear, fear of failure, my, my advice would be to go back and use your own words that you talked about uh, in your player development mentality. Uh, you know, you said, hey, I'm going to worry about what I do well first, and then I'll add in my deficiencies next. And that would be my, my little thought to just use your words and put them back into your brain and you feel that day of that fear of failure go, wait a minute, I'm going to rest in the things that I do well first and that stuff that I, that, and I'm going to live, live in that space and then the other stuff will we'll, we'll, we'll grow that when we can get to it. But, um, you know, I just think that, uh, you know, like I said earlier, big fan and, and I know the show is going to be a big fan. I know, you, you know, I, I'm sure all the guys have notes that look like mine. I got a page here and, you know, we're going to have you back on. We got to get into the X's and O's when we get closer to the season, get some talk about that. Uh, see what your uh, your game within the game mentality is, what's important to you, and, and we can bat that around and talk about just the little things that you love with that. So my final question is, uh, you know, where uh, is – where is – because when you drop this on this show about Tex-Mex and barbecue, all four guys in this screen right here became – that you, you already won us over there. So – Give us your number one favorite location for Tex-Mex and your number one favorite location for barbecue. And then my last question is, will that be a part of your demanded pre-grain repertoire for your team? <laughs> oh, that's so hard because like, you know, I'm thinking about Huntsville. I was in Huntsville, so it's a small town, you know, but they have, I think there's probably like seven Mexican restaurants there, but like, I like something good about all of them, like, you're like, oh, well, what do I want today? Well, the margarita over here does this, and this one does that, and then, well, this queso is like this, and these chips, and, well, these enchiladas, and, um, you're a connoisseur. A place. Guys, guys, she's a connoisseur. I mean, look at the, this is a whole podcast itself right now. Yeah, but she uh, runs way too a, much for us. I mean, like, we'll, we'll, we'll be the eating, and then you can still do the running. <laughs> That's funny. Um, there's a place in Huntsville called Seven Legus. I like that place. Uh, they got a little bit of all of it. You know, they got the margaritas, the chips, the the, the enchiladas, and and all that stuff. Oh, uh, barbecue, man, that's hard. Cause if anyone from Texas hears this, I'm gonna give like the wrong answer. So, <laughs> um, I've had a lot of good barbecue in Huntsville. I haven't even been up to all the places in Huntsville, but a place we've gone like probably the most is McKenzie's. Um, there's Hard Eight. I really like that up in like Dallas area. I think I think there's a few of them around, but I like that one a lot. I know there's like better spots I'm missing out on that are like maybe more like local places. So if you're listening to this, you're from Texas, please do not, you know, don't hurt me for that. <laughs> I'm just I'm just ignorant, you know. I, I need more. <laughs> 
Well, Kira, we really want to thank you very, a lot for coming on today. You shared a ton of great information. And I think, um, you know, as we kind of were, were hyping you, what Brian said, definitely hyping you up because, you know, you have a great future in front of you. And we believe a lot of the same things you do. And, uh, you know, all we can say is good luck to you and hope you, uh, hope you kill it. Thank you. I really appreciate that. All right. We'll be back with some more from From the Bench. Welcome back to From the Bench. I want to thank you, Ricarda, again for joining us today. Uh, new head coach at Missouri S&T. Uh, just want to touch on, we're going to go around the horn here and I'll start us off. Uh, one of the things that really stood out to me uh, was, you know, bright young head coach, has a great future ahead of her. But the one thing that I'm going to take from that conversation that we had, and I'm actually going to uh, implement it into my coaching and the way I look at things, is she talked about being a maximizer. And I think that can relate to coaches. It can also relate to current players. And she utilized the example of, you know, she had a great mid-range game, might not have been a great defender, but she put a lot of her energy and her time into maximizing what she was good at. Um, you know, and that's something I think we all can do. You can work on a weakness to your blue in the face, but there is a ceiling there. Uh, and a lot of times, whether it's off-season training, even in the season where players might want to fix something really quickly, it's don't focus too much on the weaknesses. You know, really try to focus back on the positives. Uh, and I think that relates to me, uh, especially in terms of a coach. And if I am struggling reaching a person, uh, you know, on a personal level, um, you know, maybe just – don't be an a-hole, <laughs> just kind of still be demanding, but yet make her see the worth uh, in what you bring to the table. And for me, as a defensive coordinator or an X's and O's guy, I can kind of do that uh, and then maybe work on the player development piece or the personal relationship piece in the offseason when there's a little bit more time. But just being a maximizer, uh, that's something that hit a chord with me, and I know I'm going to move forward, kind of keeping that in the back of my mind, you know, just try to maximize things, be a maximizer. Uh, what about you, Jesse? It's a great, great point. It's a great shout that you had on, on she dropped so many good things. I want to circle back to something that we had a show about where, where we had uh, young coaches on sort of talking about learning about the, the story of that. And, and I think something that she talked about with her own story, she sort of really referenced it was, you know, her story was sort of coming out of sort of the, the you know, the lower ends of, of the spectrum. And I think a lot of times, you know, that, that story of that $3,000 a year stipend job, where basically she's just going to roll up her sleeves and do whatever she had to do. I think sometimes that that story needs to have some glamor to it in a way, you know, and be glamorized. I mean, here she is, uh, you know, in really a relatively short time is running her own program. And that was her foundation. And I think sometimes, you know, we, we all try to look at other people's stories and, and go, oh, well, because of this, they were put into that spot. And, and I think that, you know, really want to resonate her story and that, that part of it that, that sometimes you may have to go in what seemingly looks like a backward step. You know, as she alluded to, here I am with a college degree, basically doing something on the floor that I probably am way overqualified for, but that was her means to an end to get what she wanted to do. And I, I think that that point uh, for young coaches listening to our show, uh, sometimes you just got to be able to pivot and, and, 
and get yourself and get your foot in the door and, and then you can knock it down later. And as she shared in her story, she has the skill set to knock down the door. So, you know, that was the piece that really resonated with me. Vero, for you, what, what happened? What, what, what thoughts come to your mind? Yeah, a lot of it is that. It's, it's that grind. But, but I think it, it's also that service leadership that she possesses in the sense of just, you know, she, she had a very keen self-awareness of not only her own talents and skill sets, but the role that she was in. Right. When she was at Milwaukee, she I mean, she was already taking inventory of like, how do we keep this sustainable? She goes to Sam Houston State and it's like, OK, so we're rebuilding. You know, what what is that brand? What is that style? How how do we sell these kids? But but the biggest thing that I, I think is and she said it, relationships are cliche and, and they kind of are. But, you know, the fact that she was grinding in a way and she even said this, right, she worked too hard a little bit, but like where there were coaches recruiting her junior college kids asking for information and she was giving it to them right away. So she knew what it meant to not only recruit kids coming in, but how to advocate for them to be recruited as they, as they leave. And, and I thought that was huge and a, and a, and a perspective that I, I think, you know, a lot of high school club, two-year colleges have just because they have to bring in, but then also advocate for. So I, I just think, it, I mean, she's the future. Um, I think her generation is the generation we, I know we've all talked about that has a similar grind to what we are all kind of alluding to with, with our own stories, just simply because they're not, they're not losing, even though they move up, they're not losing the perspective of the grinder you know, where just because you hit D1, and I know everyone says it, man, D1, 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 all of a sudden then D1, it's like, okay, I can relax. She's still grinding it out. And, and, and I think it's a great story and, and hopefully we have her back so that we can, we can see what she tested, you know, with those philosophies that she has already. Tell them what about you. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that she said that I, I kind of stuck on was she wanted to make sure that she executes her purpose. And her purpose was to serve others through her passion and her passion is basketball. And, you know, I think she's been true to that. If you go all the way back to her first job, you know, coaching sixth graders or fifth graders or whatever. And she really understood that getting to know them and getting to understand them as people was going to be the best way to reach them as athletes. So, and, you know, I think when you look at that story through all of it, she goes from there and then she works at Thomas College for she essentially paid them to work there, um, you know, then to get her foot in. And then she went to the junior college as an assistant so she could learn how to do everything. And then, like she says, then she's an assistant at a D2 and like she got caught working hard. Like, you know, I mean, and, and knowing that she was trying to perfect her craft no matter where she was. And then she took a job at an established program to feel what that was like. Then another job at a program that was building to see what that is like. So she's all the while prepared herself for where she's at now, going all the way back to, gosh, you go back to her driveway when she was playing against the boys across the street and, and playing up. So I don't think in, there's a single point in her path where it wasn't clear to her, you know, how, um, how her passion was going to outweigh kind of any thoughts of any negative thoughts. And I think that's a great way to go through your career. I think it's a way, way, great way to go through the life is if you're passionate about it and uh, you're aware of it, 
and you can explain and articulate what you're trying to do, I, I think that puts you leaps and bounds ahead of a lot of others that are still trying to figure that out. So she's extremely um, motivating to listen to um, and uh, absolutely certain she's, she's going to do great. So uh, again, from all of us uh, here uh, on the bench, we want to thank Kira Carter for coming on today. And uh, we hope that uh, you enjoyed the show and we're looking to see you uh, next week.